Welcome to the Swimming From Home talk show. I'm here with Matt Biondi. Um, Matt, I guess first off, uh, how, have, how have you been handling things during this, uh, this quarantine period? I'm a, kind of a stay-at-home guy anyway. Um, I think the popularity from the Olympics uh, affected me in that uh, I really wasn't ready for all the attention that I got. And so I would um, be out in public and, and doing the sports marketing and the public speaking. And then I would retreat to the six acres I bought in Castor Valley with my dog. And uh, I would buy, get enough groceries to last a couple of weeks and I would be happy just to stay at home. So I must admit though, um, like as a teacher, I didn't like going out on Friday nights after the work week. Um, but I would end up going with friends because they were anxious to get out on the weekend. And I must say, I do miss, <laughs> I do miss restaurants and socializing with people. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, speaking of those Olympics, um, uh, do you have, you know, from your, from, in 1988, you won seven Olympic medals. Uh, do you have a favorite one of those medals or was there one that surprised you the most? Um, Daniel Goldman. Uh, wrote this book about um, power of positive thinking. And um, in there was um, the comment that they weren't surprised after a uh, third place finish in the 200 free to Duncan Armstrong and then uh, um, losing the gold medal by a hundredth of a second to um, Anthony Nesty in the 100 fly that uh, I would come back later that evening and anchor our 800 free relay in um, the fastest split I ever, I ever So I think that final leg of the two by um, four by 200 free relay from Seoul was really kind of the turning point for me where I felt like I had shown the world at least once what I was capable of doing. And then things could relax a little bit after that. Um, I felt very strongly that um, I would go home as uh, someone who had established his name in the sport and has accomplished great things. And so that, that final leg of the relay when we won and, and set the world record um, just sort of launched the rest of the Olympics for me. Yeah. Now, at that time, the 50 hadn't been in an event for very long. Is that correct? It had been a world best. Uh-huh. And then in um, 86, I believe, they changed it to a world record. Okay. And then um, the 88 games was the first time that the 50-meter freestyle was. So whenever they list the gold medals in the 50-meter freestyle, I'll always be at the top. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> Did So is that, um, you know, maybe – before 86, is that something you were training for with, I mean, did you think that would get added or were you hoping it would get added or was that kind of a primary event for you before that time? Up until um, the 96 games, I trained from the 50, 100 and up to the 200. Okay. Throwing a 100 butterfly. Um, I also played water polo, which really helped my butterfly, oddly enough, gave me a lot of <laughs> body strength. Uh -huh. the freestyle necessarily did um but you know the, the sprints are such a big part of the college program 
And so it, it just was a natural for me to, you know, the 100 was kind of my bread and butter, and I could bump up to the 200 or bump down to the 50. Um, but it was also like the, the 50 was also the most energetic event at a swim meet. Um, the fact that Tom Jager was such an incredible um, competitor and so talented athletically that when we would race against each other, um, and nobody went to the bathroom, nobody was in the concession stand, right? Everybody was, and you'd feel this, this um, electricity would come into the arena for the, the, the dash for cash, so to speak, right? Yeah, so, so that segues perfectly. So the dash for cash, <laughs> Mel actually just told me, like, ask him about that. And so I don't even, I don't know what the dash for cash is. Can you inform me? So was that a, a TV show? Well, um, really the idea that you could market a swimming competition um, was something we observed from other sports in track and field, tennis. Mm -hmm. We had such a great rivalry and there, and so many people enjoyed the fact that, you know, on any given day, you never know who was going to win or who was going to take the record. Um, so we received lots of invitations in Europe to be able to travel together and um, to be a part of a competition um, that was existing or, you know, simply just a, um, a, um, a match race, um, you know, the only competition on the ticket. And really well in Europe. Um, and so we we're talking with, um, with ABC Sports, Wide World of Sports, to see if they would be willing to cover it. Um, there was quite a bit of um, kickback and discussion with uh, USA Swimming about whether this was taking the sport professional and whether we were going to you know, corrupt the sport by introducing the money to it. So it was really revolutionary. This has never happened in swimming before. And a big part of it was the fact that Tom and I had such an intense rivalry between the two of us. So um, what was interesting is um, USA Swimming allowed for the match race to go on as long as it was not associated with um, a USA Swimming event. So I think we were in Nashville, Tennessee, and literally at the end of the competition, 5,000 people, stands, fans and swimmers had to exit the building. <laughs> we put everybody out into the, the, into the courtyard area outside, they closed the doors, then they opened the doors and everybody came in as a quote unquote new event. And um, I think Tom beat me by four one hundredths in the final race and we were both under the world record. So um, I can say that I've broken a world record in a competition and gotten second. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, that, that doesn't happen too often. Uh, but it showed on United Airlines on uh -huh. the sports segment for about a month. And uh, I remember flying back from Denver to the Bay Area and it popped up on the screen and I sort of, you know, got <laughs> up out of my seat on the plane to see people were watching, if they were interested, if anyone would recognize that I was the one swimming. And <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, I really credit Tom with, uh, with being a, a leader in that regard. He, mm -hmm. he 
was um, outspoken and um, really, I think, had some good ideas about how swimming could be marketed better back in the 80s. Yeah. And now, I mean, I know you had a big part of that, of, of trying to market our sport in, in, the, in the late 80s. Um, what are some of the options that you tried to explore during that time besides the Dash for Cash? Well, you know, back then we had trust funds. So there were issues about what expenses we could draw from the trust fund. Um, so we had disclosing all of our income, our contracts. And, you know, obviously they don't have that anymore. But, mm -hmm. you know, we felt as though there were some privacy issues with that. And it really wasn't um, any federation's business. What I was able to negotiate with Arena or, or with Bausch & Lomb or, you know, some of the other... Um, endorsement deals that I got worldwide. Mostly the, the um, concern I think was that, you know, to innovate is to disrupt. And we saw what was happening in other sports and we wanted to um, draw attention to it. Um, we felt as though for the suit contract should come to the swimmers and not to the clubs the coaches and filter down to the swimmers it should be something that we would be able to negotiate ourselves um, i always thought it was strange that we couldn't get healthcare programs through our um, professional career or that they didn't give us any um, media training can you imagine we had no media training at all so everything really? i learned in front of the camera was trial and error and certainly i made a lot of mistakes so having said that, I mean, this is a snapshot from the late 80s and early 90s. Um, mm. It gives you an idea about how far USA Swimming and World Swimming has come in that, in that you know, 30 year period. Um, it really, uh, the, the pendulum has swung um, towards the athletes in their um, right to make a living in the sport, to be treated like true professionals, the best in the world at what they do. Mm. And, um, you know, this, the model of the amateur athlete who does it for the love of country and for the bottle of shampoo and swim bag um, is a little bit outdated when the Olympics are generating over $7 billion during the games. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I guess that kind of takes us to um, what, what the, your current project, what you're working on now, which is the Alliance, which is kind of associated with the ISL. Can you um, explain your the alliance to me sure the, the alliance it's a um, um llc corporation which has a plan for um, a board of 10 members um, six of them being from the active swimming community um, there's an attorney there's two members from the management team and then a you know sort of chairman or a leader of the meetings um, and it's simply a partnership for swimmers to be able to uh, speak with one voice, basically, around issues like had just come up with concerns about training and, you know, the Olympics were going to happen, but swimmers couldn't get to their pools and clubs because of the quarantine. So it's a forum for, for the um, upper level swimmers. And what I mean by that is to be eligible for the Alliance, you have to have a top time in the world for a long course in any event um, and then you would be able to become a member um, you would join the benefits that um, members have either with that voice um, about issues and, and training schedules and 
and um, you know individual rights of the of the athletes, as well as trying to increase the financial opportunities that swimmers have. So, one of our main goals would be to uh, negotiate some sort of guarantees from the Olympics um, in the form of prize money or participation, certainly for finals and semifinals. Mm -hmm. And then also we would like to work with other federations uh, and other sports to be able to put together a sort of scaled down version of the Olympics with seven premier sports that um, fans seem to enjoy most on television and, and live and that we would pull together in a single city and have these, um, these, these pro-Olympic games on an annual basis. So that's what we're working on. And I've been um, speaking to ISL athletes as well as to um, kind of basic hub training centers, um, like the ones down in San Diego. There's, there's ones at Berkeley and Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, I was just out in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, for okay. Ray Luce's group in Indiana. Yeah. Um, and so just, just speaking to them about new opportunities that are coming about in the sport, the changes in the sport, and um, curious if they would like to be a part of this organization to solidify um, the, the most salient points that swimmers would like to get across. Yeah. So has this um, quarantine period and, you know, especially this Olympic postponement, do you think that's actually helped this project and give it, give it kind of more time to grow before you maybe enter those negotiations with the Olympics? I think um, it's, been, it's been a double-edged sword, like so many things. Mm -hmm. um, I was really looking forward to a big surge in enrollment after the Olympics. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've spoken at length to hundreds of athletes and I would put um, a group of them in a category where they really like the idea of the Alliance. They think that swimmers should have that type of representation. But they're afraid to be the tall peg. And I know that as a saying, the tall peg gets the hammer. So if you become a, um, if you become outspoken, if you um, are a leader in your field, uh, but certainly if you go against the grain or the, um, the, the current trends that are mm -hmm. happening with coaches and with administrators and with finances, that you run the risk of not being as marketable. Um, coaches wouldn't want their athletes to take the risks. Agents, you know, say, well, why jump into it now? You know, stay, stay um, course, um, enjoy the reputation that you've uh, deserved. And then after the Olympics, go ahead and, and join this. So um, that part has not worked well for the Alliance. We wait another year um, with a number of really talented swimmers on the fence and willing to sign, but just not until their, their Olympics are over. So that part's been not so good. The, the interesting thing now is um, it really shows how vulnerable swimmers are um, with no guarantees that they for you know lost revenue because of the Olympics. I imagine some athletes, older athletes wanting to get on with their lives and families and um, relationships would would retire because the Olympics are now you know 15 months away. Um, and so I think you know swimmers realize that um, the decisions that are made are primarily commercial and economic. And yet there's this human component 
in swimming and in the Olympics. I mean, these are real people in real lives and, and um, it's not just about the money. And so I think that whole delay that the swimmers were feeling frustrated about not training was the Olympic committee was reluctant to, and the IOC was reluctant to cancel the Olympics just because of the pocketbook. It was a really a commercial decision um, that eventually they, they couldn't hold out any longer. So I think this, this last few months have really shown how vulnerable swimmers are. Um, and, you know, we deserve to have the, the, some guaranteed money for their participation. Yeah. Um, so, so where do you see uh, this going? Maybe just in the next 12 months, you know, before this 2021 Olympics, um, how do you see this alliance growing, especially with season two of ISL? Um, I've had the most success in talking to swimmers face-to-face, -face, obviously. Um, so right now, um, my ability to, to communicate with, with um, top athletes is, you know, limited to the, to the conferences over the computer or over the phone. And I, I just, um, I don't think I'm as effective that way. Um, some people might be more than others, but um, I'll be anxious to get back on the road and um, see what, you know, actually visit the swimmers in their training facilities and, and uh, be able to take them out to lunch, talk to them, answer their questions. Um, so that, I'll, I'll look forward to that. Um, but until we can, you know, open up the airports and the highways, um, I'll be just here on the computer trying to um, talk to swimmers and address their concerns and just continue to draw input from, um, where what they'd like to see their their direction of their careers going yeah i guess as a as a final question um you know you mentioned an annual pro olympics which to me personally sounds exhilarating um wh why would that be one main main focus of yours you know what what would that uh, what do you see as the benefit of that there for our sport I think, you know, what the, the Alliance, the vision that I have for the Alliance is to give athletes more choice. So they would sit down with their coaches and over the next you know, sometimes four year periods, certainly, you know, an, an annual calendar of, of what events they want to participate in. And if they feel like travel is too much or it's not the right time of the season for them, then they simply can choose not to go. Um, but so the Alliance with this Games to Magic is what it's called, but the idea is a pro Olympic games. And then, you know, you have the ISL and, and you have your, your um, international meets. And so the more opportunities that we can provide out there, um, the better we can showcase our sport. And, you know, there's also a whole tier of very talented swimmers who, you know, make an Olympic final, but don't win a medal. And, it would open up opportunities for those um, really exceptional sw swimmers and other athletes who um, may be overshadowed when there's only one big competition every four years. So we can mix the sports, put in more major competitions and give more people opportunity to earn a living and to um, get exposure for their commercial value as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that sounds awesome. Um, so any, do you, do you have any closing thoughts, Matt? I'm, I feel um, very fortunate 
to have this opportunity. Um, I, I, I take it with great sense of, of pride that, um, you know, it's, it's it, in a sense, it's been able to bring my career kind of full circle. Um, I'll be honest, in uh, the years from 89 to 92 were very difficult for me to find training. I had to hire my own coach. Um, the head men's Olympic coach for 96. Um, I asked him if, if I could come train him at Texas. And, uh, and he said, no, I couldn't come because his loyalty was to his Texas team and not to the United States, even though he was the head coach. So those last few years were really difficult for me. And that's how I ended up in the classroom, teaching math and, and being a swim coach. For 17 years, I just really needed to get away from swimming. So this opportunity to come back with all the changes that are happening, a lot of the things that Tom and I spoke about uh, 30 years ago have come true, even though back then it was a, you know, a heavy lift. Um, and now it's a real part of everyday life. And so this is an opportunity for me to get back to something I was really passionate about. And um, in, a, in a new environment where professionalism uh, for our Olympic athletes is, is widely accepted. That's yeah. I mean, congrats. It's a real treat. It's a real treat for me. That's very cool. I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, I only know the the world of swimming that, that I've been brought up in. And certainly I think it, it has room to grow, but you know, hearing, hearing the world that you were coming from, it, it is, it is very cool to see the strides we've made. Um, well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Matt. Sure. Yeah. And hopefully more strides to come in the future. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah.